I am so glad that you are joining us today for part four of our series, Dinner with Jesus. If you've been joining us in this series over the last few installments of it, we have heard from many different people, many different perspectives, all centered around these meals that Jesus had with people. Your boy began our series in part one, really looking at this common occurrence in Jesus's life and his ministry, something we might call a center dinner, right? Because Jesus found himself regularly eating good food with uh, bad people. And this habit in his life literally was the almost like backbone of how he did ministry. And it's something that should be employed. It's something that should be modeled by us today that we should be people that bring into our lives those who are far from God to connect them to him. Because like Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I've not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they aren't. Dinner with Jesus. And then the second installment, Amanda McCollum. Come on, thank God for Amanda and the word that she brought to us. Amanda brought us a, a word uh, connected around this idea of glory in the ordinary. How God really wants to get glory in the ordinary everyday situations of our life. She used that dinner that was the wedding feast in Cana the site of Jesus's first miracle, but a meal where people's eyes were open and this is the one his disciples believed because of this miracle, this extraordinary thing that God does in a very ordinary situation. And then in part three, Isaac Johnson brought us a great word, encouraging us, speaking to us from that, that meal that Jesus had with that nasty old tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. Reminding us that uh, you are who Jesus says you are. You're not what others or society may say. You are who Jesus says you are. And it's that idea that really I'm going to pick up on today and even move further as we dive into the fourth installment. But before we do that, I want to look ahead. Somebody in that chat or even just say it to yourself, say next week. Yes, indeed. Next week will be our fifth and final installment of Dinner with Jesus. And as we dive into Dinner with Jesus, we are going to lean into what is undoubtedly the most important meal Jesus ever had. It is what some of us know and call the Last Supper. It was the night before Jesus would give his life. He gathered his disciples for a meal. And we're going to lean into that meal, the significance of it. And not only that, whether you join us for service online or you join us in person, we are going to receive communion together. And my prayer is that it will be a, an eye-opening, spirit-invigorating moment for you. So get ready for that. Make plans for that. Tell everybody you know. And that dinner with Jesus is the perfect setup for what's going to happen in two weeks as we celebrate Easter at Believing gathering with millions upon millions of people around the world who will celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive just as he said. And in celebration of that here at Believing, we are actually changing our schedule. We are making more room for more friends, making more room at the table because he wants a bigger table. Come on, part one, people. He wants a bigger table. So we're making more room for more people in our in-person services. And on Easter Sunday, we'll begin hosting two worship experiences every single week. 
one at 9.30 a.m. on Sundays and one at 11.15 a.m. At those in-person gatherings, we will have the same preaching, the same music, the same videos, B-Kids, everything that we have always done in one service, we will now double it, making more room for you to bring your friends. So right now, be praying about who you can bring. Right now, be praying about who you can invite into what God is doing. Plus, on that day, we're going to be serving people online in a new and I think even better way. We're going to begin offering our worship experience online at 9.30 a.m. instead of 10.30, so it'll be one hour earlier. But then what we're going to begin doing is every Sunday, we will also make available our worship experience on Sundays in an on-demand fashion all afternoon. And so you'll be able to join with people and chat and do all that kind of stuff at 9.30. And then if you miss it, you want to catch it, you were at work, you overslept, whatever had happened, you'll be able to catch the whole of the worship experience. Come on, worship, uh, the, the news, uh, any other enhancement, as well as the sermon that afternoon. And so I'm excited about this, excited about us being able to serve more people together, us being able to lean in together. And speaking of serve leads me to one final thing as we begin to dive into this is that right now we are asking and encouraging every single person that calls Believing Home, if that's you, come on, whether you call it home online, you call it home in person, you call it home, sort of a little hybrid of both, to jump in and begin serving with us. Serving more people, making more room for more friends, uh, it means we need more people serving. More people serving online and in person. In fact, right now, if you're watching at Church Online, in the chat, there's a join a team little, little thing that just popped up. And as it does, you can go right there and join a team today. Whether it's with B-Kids, whether it's with hosting, whether it's with music or product, whatever it might be, we, we, we are, as a church, jumping in, serving more so we can serve even more people. And so I would invite you and encourage you to do that today. There's not a better time than right now to jump into all God's doing at believing. But I know that even as I say those words, there are some of you that, uh, quite honestly, you don't believe you can serve God. Or maybe to say it better, you don't believe you are worthy of serving God in his house. And if that's true of you, if that thought, if that criticism, if that shame hits your own mind and your own heart today, can I tell you, this word is for you. Because Jesus was the one who, in a meal, restored the one who did not deserve restoration. Jesus had a meal one time, and in that meal, he uh, reconnected, re-extended relationship to one that, quite honestly, didn't deserve to be re-entered into relationship in that way with him. Jesus reconfirmed the calling on the life of someone who quite honestly did not deserve to have their calling reaffirmed on their life. Not because of Jesus, but because of what they did. That's what this person thought. And to be honest, they were probably right. But Jesus brought restoration to them through a dinner with him. And I believe that same restoration that Jesus brought at that meal is available to any and all of us today as we step into dinner 
with Jesus. So if you're ready for God's word on today, somebody in that chat just type, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Because the one that I'm talking about today is one who is most commonly known as one of Jesus' disciples by the name of Peter. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him, his biological name or his government name, his name that his mama gave him, was actually the name Simon. He was a, a fisherman. He was a fisherman when Jesus found him and called him to follow him. But Jesus saw something in Peter. So much so that maybe you're familiar with the fact that Jesus had 12 disciples, but out of those 12, he had three that were part of sort of like his inner circle. He had his, his group of leaders, but then he had his leaders of leaders. He had those who would be with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He would have those who would go with him a step further on the night that he was going to give his life to pray a little more. And it was James, John, and Peter. Jesus saw something in him. That's why he pulled him into this inner group. But Peter was human. And Peter failed Jesus, quite honestly, when Jesus could have used Peter the most. And now we find Peter, as we are going to see in the text today, that we are going to uh, use as sort of a, a ground zero, a, a centralizing point for us as we explore the, the restoration given to Peter at this dinner with Jesus. We find just that him as someone who needed restoration. Him as someone because of what he did and what he didn't do needed restoration. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're one who feels and hears all this stuff about God. You love the church. You love Jesus. But yet you, 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 you know because of what you have done. You know because of who you are. Like there's something in you that does not believe you can do what I'm telling you. You do not believe you can do what Jesus is calling you to. Baby, today you need to lean in and receive God's word for you on today. John chapter 21 is where we're going to be. And in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, the scripture records this literal restoration as it's known of Peter. This is the moment when Jesus restores Peter after Peter has uh, done some things to need restoration. Verse 15, it says it this way. It says, when they had eating breakfast. Now you say, I thought this was dinner with Jesus, not breakfast with Jesus. Get the context. This is like a Waffle House breakfast at four o'clock in the morning, which is really dinner because you've been up the whole night before. You know what I'm talking about? Like this is that. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? 
He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. This is the moment where Peter is restored. In fact, if you were to look in a Bible of your own, you would probably see some section title not put in there by the original writers, but put in there by people trying to help you navigate what's going on in the Bible and find stuff a little quicker. It would probably be like the restoration or the reinstallment of Peter. Which would lead us to a very significant question. Why does Peter need restoration? Yes, Peter had been one of Jesus' disciples. It was one of Jesus' disciples. But on the night that Jesus was arrested and tried and publicly humiliated and ultimately crucified for the sin of humanity, Peter denies Jesus three times. He denies that he even knows him. He denies that he's ever met him. He denies that he ever had any sort of relationship, any sort of affiliation with Jesus. Three different times. Now, people love to read into these repetitions of Jesus, all sorts of tertiary things that miss the bigger picture of his restoration. Jesus repeats three times, interplaying two different Greek words as they're translated for us that mean love, articulating the fact that Jesus, when he asked, do you love me, wasn't actually asking the same question each time. The first two times and the last time he actually asks slightly different questions. But he asks him, do you love me, three different times to cover for Peter the three different times he denied Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus asks him, do you love me three times? There is correlation to this restoration. That's what happened. But that's not why. Why does Peter need restoration? Peter needed restoration because his failure had led him to abandon Jesus's purpose for him. We say, I didn't see that in the text. We're going to have to read more text than what I just gave you. I just gave you the restoration moment. Peter needed restoration because his failure led him to abandon Jesus's purpose for him. John 21 actually begins with Peter and about half a dozen other disciples, literally the, the ones who were part of the 12. And they're out fishing. But when they went fishing, and how they went fishing, and the culture of fishing in that day would lead us to believe and know that they weren't out fishing for fun. They were fishing for work. Which most of us, when we think of going fishing, we think of fishing for fun. Now, I don't, because I don't think fishing is fun. <laughs> like, does that bother you? I'm sorry. I don't. I know some of you love it. Ain't nothing seem more relaxing to you than casting a line and sitting out there and just fishing, whether in a little boat or sitting by the spillway or down on the rocks. Like, you just find you a little hole. A little, you, you throw a fishing line in the bathtub if you could. Like, like, that just is relaxing to you. I have never in my life enjoyed fishing. It's never been fun. In fact, my grandfather, uh, when he was alive, he was a, he was a big fisherman. And when, I can remember being a little kid, and my grandfather wanted so badly for me to go fishing with him. And I did, but not because I love fishing. 
I went because I love sausage and biscuits. <laughs> and I knew if I went fishing, I would get a sausage and biscuit. And so, uh, but if I didn't go fishing, I wasn't gonna get a sausage and biscuit. And so I would go fishing so I could get a sausage and biscuit. And so I could get my grandfather, I don't even know how he acquired these because nothing at the time was distributed in this way. But yeah, my grandfather had Gatorades in glass bottles. And it is scientific proof and reality that any drink in a glass bottle is better than in a plastic bottle. It just is. I don't know what happens and what doesn't happen, but it's just better that way. And my grandfather had glass bottle Gatorade. And so if I was ever going to have a glass bottle Gatorade with a sausage and biscuit, which may have been the greatest meal in life to 10-year-old me, I had to go fishing. It wasn't fun, but he thought it was fun. And I understand some of you, you think fishing sounds fun. And that's great. In that day... And in these circumstances, and at this time, and in this way, these people weren't fishing for fun. They were fishing for work. Which is an important thing to note because Luke chapter 5 tells us that Jesus called Peter to follow him. And when he called Peter to follow him, Peter was fishing. Peter was a fisherman. And the scripture says in Luke chapter 5 that he left his nets and followed Jesus. But now, here he is in John 21. Here he is three years later. Here he is after he has denied Jesus. And he picked those same nets back up. Why? Maybe because he didn't believe that he was cut out for what Jesus had called him to do. I need you to note when this is. Because John 21 occurs, yes, after Peter has denied Jesus, but also after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus has already appeared to his disciples twice. Jesus has already dealt with Thomas's doubts. But Peter still believed his denial defined him. Some of you listening to me today, some of you watching at church online, listening to this podcast, some of you may be connecting with God's word for the first time this year. Some of you, maybe it's your first time to join us in church. You are hearing this on today and you feel just like Peter. Can I speak a word to you now that Jesus is speaking to Peter as he restores him? Write this down if you've got notes today that what you did is not greater than what he said. Whatever you did that you feel like disqualifies you from following you, whatever it is you did that causes you to feel less than, whatever it is you did that causes you to feel separated from him, does not become greater than whatever he said about you. But I know some of you feel you made a promise to change. In fact, let's be honest. You have made so many promises to change, but you ain't ever changed. You have promised again and again and again you're going to stop. Again and again and again you're going to start. Again and again and again you're going to be different and you never do. And there's something in you that because you make a promise that you never follow through with, you feel like what you did is greater than what he said even though he said you're new even though he said you're his. You make a decision to be different. The only problem is you say it, but you never become different. When the opportunity comes for you to 
demonstrate the difference that is true of you now. You never live up to it. May I remind you again what Jesus is telling Peter. That what you did is not greater than what he said. Peter needed this word. Because here he is with a few others right back where they were when Jesus called them. Right back where they started. Right back where he found them. They spent three years with Jesus. They'd seen him resurrected. But they went back. They went back to their life before Jesus. They went back to doing what it was he said, you ain't doing this no more. I have something new for you to do. See, when Jesus found him, read it, Luke chapter 5. He says, from now on, you will fish for men. From now on. But here he is fishing for fish again. Here he is right back in the place, right back in the occupation, right back in the work that used to consume him. He's right back doing it again. Jesus had called him to something different. But Peter clearly didn't believe he was worthy. And it's Peter's belief in his lack of worth that caused Jesus to know that Peter needs restoration with me. Because Peter knew that he needed something to change. Because he knew he wasn't worthy. So if he knew that, why does he get frustrated at Jesus' repetition of a question? Think about what we read in John chapter 21, verses 15, 16, and 17. Jesus asks him three times, John records, do you love me? The first time Peter says, yes. The second time Peter says, yes, of course, you know that I love you. The third time Jesus asks, do you love me? The scripture says that Peter, that Peter gets, he gets frustrated. The word that our translation used is he was grieved. It's like his heart was hurt that Jesus was questioning again his love for him. Why would Peter think this? Why would these emotions even be in Peter if Peter knew that he had denied Christ? If Peter knew that he wasn't worthy? If Peter knew he had let Jesus down when he had his moment to stand up? Why would it grieve him that Jesus is asking him again, do you love me? To which if I was Jesus, and let's all be glad I'm not Jesus, okay? <laughs> but if I was Jesus, and I ask the one who had denied me three times, after that fact, do you love me? And they reply, you know that I love you. I would reply probably something to the effect of, do I? Do I know that you love me? Because I happen to remember a Thursday night not too long ago where you found yourself around a little campfire and some little girl asked if you knew me and you said, I don't even know you. In fact, the third time you got asked about it, you started cussing and swearing and ho hollering down curses, talking about, I don't know that, beep, 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 beep. Like, but watch this. Jesus never brings that up. Never. 
Why? Because Peter told the truth. Peter never stopped loving Jesus. Peter stopped trusting Jesus. Peter never stopped for a moment loving Jesus, his heart being full of affection, sensing the camaraderie, loving the companionship, thinking about the years that they had spent together, the, the battles that they had fight, the connection and affiliation that he had. He never stopped loving Jesus, but he did stop trusting Jesus. And you need to realize on today, it is entirely possible for you to love Jesus and not trust Jesus. And maybe today that's what's true for you. It's not that you don't love Jesus. You just don't trust Jesus. There. And this is what is so conflicting in your mind. You see, because what happened to Peter can happen to you. Peter never stopped loving Jesus. Peter did stop trusting Jesus. You say, how do you know? Well, the moment that he denies Jesus the third time and the rooster crows, the scripture says, you can read it for yourself, that, that he wept bitterly. He ran off full of tears. He didn't just cry a tear like, oh, I messed that one up. No, there was pain because he had let down the one that he loved. There was pain because he did not trust in a moment that trust was needed. The one that he loved so much on Easter Sunday morning that we're going to celebrate when the women come back and make the first announcement that he is not here. He is risen just as he said. Peter was one of the two that take off from the room they are and run all the way to the tomb. Why? Because he loved Jesus. He never stopped loving Jesus. But he found himself in a place, in a moment, in a situation that he didn't trust Jesus there. So what do we do when we Stop trusting. We go back to where we were. We uh, feel torn because we love Jesus, but we feel guilty that we don't have the will to follow through with doing what Jesus has asked us to do. Do you love me? The way the Greek translates it is the word agape. Which some of you have been wrongly told that that Greek word agape means God's love. It does not. It's more general than that. It's best evidenced in the love of God, but it's more general than that. It's a love based on a decision. It's a altruistic kind of love. It's a love that I will do what is right. I will do what is loving. I will do what is needing, no matter the situation. Uh, it, the Latin took that Greek word agape and created the word charitas, from which we get the word charity in English from. It is that type of love. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it because I have decided. Not because of how I feel, because I've decided. Do you agape me, he says. 
And Peter replies, you know that I phileo you. Phileo is another Greek word for love. This means more of a brotherly love. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is more of a camaraderie. We've been through a lot, and there's a kinship, a closeness. This was very valuable in the Greek society. Jesus asked, do you agape me? And Peter says, you know that I phileo you. He asked him again, do you agape me? Do you have the will to love? And Peter says, you know, you know, you know, I phileo you. And then the third time Jesus says, do you phileo me? See, did he lower the bar? No. Maybe he just helped Peter to understand that the love you have for me is enough. What I need from you now is to follow me. See, if you love Jesus but do not trust Jesus, you will not follow Jesus. If you love Jesus, this is some of you listening to me right now. You love Jesus, but you know that you know that you know that you do not follow Jesus. Can I tell you the reason you do not follow Jesus? It's not because you do not love Jesus. It is because you do not trust Jesus. But if you could ever learn to trust Jesus, then you would find yourself following Jesus. And this is very significant because Jesus never calls us or anybody to love him. Did you know that? You will not find a place where Jesus says, love me. You need to love me better. Love me. It sounds like a dysfunctional boyfriend, right? Jesus always said, follow me. Jesus said, if you love me, John chapter 14. If you, if you say that you love me, here's how you prove it. Do what I said. Follow my commands. John 15, if you want to be my friend, here's how you are my friends. Do what I've commanded you to do. Many people, I believe you truly love Jesus. But the truth is you feel like your love is a farce because you don't follow him like he wants. And maybe that's you. Can I tell you today, friend, if you love Jesus... But you know you don't follow Jesus like he wants. You need a restoration. You don't follow him fully like he's asked. Follow him fully like he's called. You need restoration. Just like Peter. And just like Peter, restoration is most potent, most powerful, most transformative. In the place where the pressure of trusting became too hot for you. So John 21 tells us that Jesus is on the beach while they're out fishing. And he makes a little charcoal fire. And he calls Peter over to the fire. Yes, for this fish dinner. But it was around a fire in Matthew 26 where Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus didn't have to bring him to dinner, but he had to bring him to dinner. Jesus didn't have to cook for him, but he had to cook for him. Because there was probably a little bit of PTSD inside of Peter every time he saw a fire after that fire. 
Because he remembers he was over there warming his hands, thinking he was going to make it through the night. Remembering how at, at that last supper, he had told Jesus, I, I'll never deny you. They'll kill me and I won't deny you. And now a little girl is questioning his allegiance to his savior and he's denying. And now here he is sitting with Jesus. The one that he loves, but for whatever reason does not trust enough to not deny him around a fire. And as that, the smell of that fire filled his nostril. I'm sure thoughts from the enemy began to enter his mind. Questioning his allegiance. Questioning his love. Even though his love was never in question. See, your moments around your fire don't discredit your love. They reveal your trust. Whatever your fire may be, the moments that you are around them do not discredit your love for Jesus, but they bring revelation to what you really trust. See, Peter's moment around the fire challenged his boldness to declare truth about Jesus. Do you know him? The little girl asked. I saw you with him, somebody else in a crowd said. When Peter flips out, it was some people who he thought could do him harm. And, and he said, we know we saw him with you. And his boldness was being called into question. Which would be very significant considering when we flip the page and find ourselves in the book of Acts chapter 2. The one who's going to need boldness on the day of Pentecost when people are saying that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit are actually drunk and it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's Peter that's full of boldness. Boldness is going to be what is called upon to profess and announce and declare who Jesus is. And so it was his boldness that was attacked around a fire. But Peter thinks in his heart of hearts, I just must not love Jesus enough. But that wasn't true. It wasn't about loving Jesus enough. It was about trusting Jesus there. And see, you have moments around the fire. Moments that challenge and moments that call out something that demands something of you and from you around the fire. Those fires may not be physical fires. Those fires may be difficult situations. Some of you, you love Jesus, but whenever difficulty becomes a part of your reality, you find yourself divorcing yourself from him. You find yourself blaming him for the difficulty in your present. And you find it increasingly impossible to be able to follow Jesus when your life is difficult and you blame it on your love for Jesus. It is not your love that is the problem. It is your ability to trust him around that fire. For some of you, it has to do with your scheduling. 
Because there's something in you that knows you should carve out in the 24 hours that God gives you called today. You should carve out some time to spend with your creator, to spend with your savior, to spend with the one that you love. But yet you go day after day, week after week, month after month, and you never even offer a prayer unless you find yourself in a service. You, 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 you never even read God's word unless somebody like me reads God's word to you. You planned on reading the Bible in a year. You started a, a Bible reading plan on January 1 through the YouVersion Bible app. And good on you. The problem is you have gone 67 consecutive days without looking at that Bible plan. And now it depresses you. Because you open it up and you open up the plans and you get that little thing that says, catch me up. It says, catch me up. Because you ain't made it past Genesis 5. And when you see that, there's something in you that feels like, I just must not love Jesus enough. And so the enemy plants seeds of thoughts questioning your faith, questioning your salvation, questioning the transformation that Jesus has brought to your life. Because your fire is your schedule. For some of you, your fire is called payday. Because you know that everything you have comes from God. You believe when it's taught. You believe when it's preached. You believe when it's encouraged. That you know that, that, that giving, that generosity is what fuels ministry. And you see ministry and you've experienced ministry. And you know you should give. But there's something in you every single time you get paid that, that chooses to not trust God there. But yet you define it as not loving God. And you feel like if somehow you could love God more, then you would give. The problem is not your love for him. The problem is your trust in him around that fire. May I ask you a question on today? Please write this down. Where do you not trust Jesus? Where is it? Where is it in your life and in your living, where it is in your days, in your weeks, that you do not trust Jesus? Because what I have found with most people is they are perfectly content to trust Jesus with their eternity and completely reluctant to trust Jesus with their today. Where is the place for you that you will not, you feel like you cannot, you know that you do not trust Jesus? I know you get squeamish when I even mention it. You get nervous and bothered and all verklempt and got to use the restroom whenever somebody brings that up. That's because we're going back to the fire, Peter. And as you breathe in that smell again, as you see those flames again, it reminds you of the last time when you didn't do what you said you would do. Where is it that you do not trust Jesus? Some of you, it's in your career. You feel like as you clock into work, you clock out of faith. That, that your advancement, the roles that you take, the promotions that you get, the company that you work for or don't work for is all on you. And you refuse to allow Jesus to lead you, Jesus to guide you, Jesus to direct you when it comes to your career. Where do you not trust Jesus? For some of you, it's relationships because you've been betrayed. In fact, anything that looks like the time that you got betrayed you, uh, you, 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 
You react to make sure you don't get hurt again. There are people who you have divorced yourself from relationally because of what they did to you, and you are choosing not to offer forgiveness to them. And there's something in you that anytime anybody talks about forgiveness or anybody talks about betrayal or it comes up or you read about it and something hits you and you're like, ah, and you think of them, their face, their phone number, what they did, what they said comes front of mind to you, and you do not know what to do with it. And as you do not know what to do with it, something on the inside of you tells you if you really love God, you would. And so now your love for God gets questioned. When really it's not love, it's trust. For some of you, it's your finances. You have no problem trusting God with your schedule. No problem trusting God with your talent. But just as plain as it can be, you do not trust God when it comes to money. The problem is the enemy reinterprets that to you as a lack of love. For God, you say you love Jesus. You tell people you love Jesus. You wear shirts that say you love Jesus. You sing songs that say you love Jesus, but yet you won't even give. You won't even trust him with money. But I thought you said he was your provider. You must not love him like that. Some of you, it's your children. You helicopter and hover and control them because you do not believe that they are God's and that your prayers for them and over them will work in any capacity. Where do you not trust Jesus? And maybe it's not just where, but when do you not trust Jesus? Because in that area, whatever that area is, it's probably not all the time, but there are sometimes. Like, for some of you, when it comes to money, it's, 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 it's when you have a lot of money that it's hard to trust Jesus. But when you don't have any money, it's easy to trust Jesus. He's like, Jesus, just provide. I ain't got nothing. I give you what I got because I only got a dollar. But when you have a lot, it's like, I don't know about this. I remember talking to a guy one time when I lived in Texas that told me he made too much money to give to God. Some of you are the opposite. It's not a problem when you've got excess. The problem is when you don't have very much. When you know you've got more month than you do money, and it's like, oh, Jesus, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. When do you not trust Jesus? Some of you, it's when you're super busy. Because you're like, I don't have time for church, and I don't have time to serve, and I don't have time to pray. I have all of these things going on with my career, with my friends, with my nonprofit, with my business, with my entrepreneurship. I have all of these things, and sure. But because you have all of these things, you don't trust Jesus when you're busy. Or maybe it's when you're not busy, and you have time to mull over your thoughts, and to think and reflect and pontificate. When do you not trust Jesus? Whenever those moments happen, what we find ourselves doing is going back to life like it was before we met Jesus. Because what we think is we think this all wouldn't happen if I really loved Jesus. If I really trusted Jesus, that's the thing. We tell ourselves it's based on our love, when really it's based on our trust. Where do you not trust Jesus? When do you not trust Jesus? 
But like Jesus did with Peter, can I get to the root of it as I close today? Why do you not trust Jesus? See, friend, there's a reason why there is your there and not some other area. There's a reason why it's there for you. Because not everyone struggles to trust God there. Some people, it's easy to prioritize the work of God. For some people, it's easy to serve. For some people, it's easy to forgive. For some people, it's easy to be at peace. For some people, it's easy to be generous. For some people, it's easy to stop that habit. For some people, it's easy to trust people who they know will probably hurt them. For some people, it's easy, but for you, it's not there. You know, Peter was the oldest of the disciples. We know that he was married when Jesus called him. In fact, one of the miracles Jesus does is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We know that when Jesus called him, he was a, a fisherman. And by studying history and understanding the culture of that day for Peter as a Jew, we also know that being a fisherman is not what he wanted to do. Because every Jewish boy grew up with the dream of becoming a rabbi. They wanted to be a teacher of God's law. But not everybody could be a teacher. And there was a sifting process that would happen as one would grow up. You were sort of put into a group of, you got some potential, you ain't got potential. And clearly at some point along the lines of delineation, Peter was put into the, you don't have potential to be a rabbi. So then he would go to his backup plan. Because if you couldn't be a rabbi, the next best thing would be to be called by a rabbi to follow them. And typically the ones who were almost there but not quite good enough were called to follow rabbis. That may, maybe they were really smart but they couldn't communicate. Maybe they could communicate but they couldn't quite put it all together. Maybe they looked great so they you know, kind of looked great walking off the bus so they would be called to follow a rabbi. But when Jesus walking along the seashore he finds a married man married maybe because he'd given up his dream of being a rabbi because maybe you don't know this but rabbis would have had to be single who's a fisherman who's given up that pipe dream of being called to follow a rabbi ever being used by God in some way and this Rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus says words to him that he'd wanted to hear his whole life. Come follow me. And he dropped his nets in a moment and followed him because what he had wanted his whole life was given to him. And he follows this rabbi for three years. And in the moment of greatest turmoil, He denies that he ever knew it. His dream was crushed. And whenever your dream is crushed, you cope. And the easiest way to cope is to go back to what worked before, before all of this even started. I bet the enemy was in the mind and the ear of Peter 
after he denies Jesus three times. Even after Peter runs to the empty tomb early on Easter morning and sees just like Mary had told him, he's gone, he's risen. Just like he said, the enemy is hollering in his ear. You remember how you denied him? That's probably why you weren't picked when you were a kid. I mean, Jesus was trying to give you a chance, but those other rabbis really knew what they were doing. The system worked, Peter. You're not cut out for it, Peter. So let me go back to what I think I'm cut out to do. So Jesus brings him to a fire to restore within him the calling that Jesus had placed on his life. Because what Jesus said matters more than what Peter did. We all have fires, you have fires that you come back to. You know, I have fires too. Every time I give, it's like me coming back to a fire again. See, the family I grew up in, most of the dysfunction, most of the fighting, most of the squabbling centered around money and really centered around the fact that we seemed to like never have what we needed. Cars being repossessed, being kicked out of our home, all this kind of stuff being going on all the time. And it put very early on in life in me this fear of money, this fear of not having enough. In fact, I made the determination somewhere along the way, probably in high school, where I said, I am not going to, I'm not going to like live like this when I grow up. So I worked as hard as I could to learn how to manage money and do well with money. And from the time I was 17 years old, I was on my own. And, 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 and I remember going to Bible college and, and, and sensing God's, God's calling on my life in this fresh way and working these jobs and, and, and needing to and beginning to give for the very first time in my life. And I did. I did until I became a senior in college. Because when I was a senior in college, there's this girl that I've been dating for a couple of years, y'all know her as Mindy, that I wanted to ask to marry me. And I knew I needed to buy a ring. And I didn't have anybody who was going to give me money for a ring, so I had to save money. And I knew I needed to plan a honeymoon. And I knew I needed to buy furniture. And I had just gone on as like a double part-time person that basically worked full-time hours at the church I attended and served at and was on staff at. I was working 30 plus hours a week on top of that, uh, valeting cars. I was a full-time student and about to be and then became an engaged young man. And I needed to figure out a way to make and have more money. And so I decided the easiest way for me to do that would be to cut back what I gave at church. Now granted, I was on staff at church. So part of how I got paid was through people's generosity, but yet I was choosing not to be generous. And I did this for a while to help me save. And then I kept doing it 
all up to right before I was about to get married. And I remember being called into a supervisor that I had there's office. One of my dearest friends who said, man, I have to have a really uncomfortable conversation with you. I said, okay, what about? And he said, it's not, it's going to seem out of left field, but I think you'll know what I'm talking about. And he said, you know that our church, for our, our staff, we have this, this policy where people who are on staff are, you know, required to tithe. Because we ask people who, you know, don't get paid by the church to tithe. We believe that those who do get paid by the church should, which I agree with. Problem is, I wasn't practicing it. And they didn't, like, watch it to, like, the penny or anything. But they just kind of quarterly would take a look and go, is there anyone on our teams who, you know, like, there's no way they've been giving with any sort of generosity. We had a conversation about that. And I remember feeling so humiliated, but also so, like, torn, because I loved the church, and I loved God. And I knew that Jesus was my provider. But I also had this overwhelming fear connected to money. But I made a decision then and there. I said, I said, this is never going to be a thing for me again. And it hasn't. Since that day, I've always tithed and more than tithed. I tithe and give offerings. And God has provided but I would be lying to you if I told you that I still didn't experience a little bit of like PTSD every single time I give. Worrying, God, are we going to have enough? God, are we going to be covered? And some of you are honest enough to recognize with me that's exactly how you feel. Maybe it has nothing to do with giving, but it has to do with every single time you think about inviting a friend to church or every single time you think about stepping into the gifting that God has given you and using it for his glory or every single time it, it, it concerns you, you prioritizing God in your schedule. The problem is what you don't understand is this tension is messing with you on a level it's not supposed to. Because it has nothing to do with your love for Jesus and everything to do with your trust in him. Do you trust that he cares? Do you trust that he forgives? Do you trust that he provides? See, your love for Jesus cannot do what your trust in Jesus can only do. And some of you want your love, you think, well, if my love for him would grow enough, then I would follow him. No, you will start following him when you trust him enough to do what he said. See, the reason some of you aren't growing, the reason some of you feel like you never move forward in your faith, isn't because you don't love Jesus enough. It's because you won't follow Jesus. And I bet if you won't follow Jesus on that fire that makes you so uncomfortable. Friend, today is your day to be restored. And restoration, in your notes, begins through admission. But restoration becomes through action.
It's one thing to say, yes, Jesus, I haven't trusted you with those people. I haven't trusted you in those places in my life like I know that I should. Jesus, I, 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 I acknowledge this. That's one thing. But restoration becomes through action. See, it was Acts chapter 2 when Peter stands up in boldness. that I think he believed he was restored. Even though his restoration happens in John 21 when Jesus said he was restored. Please know today what you did is not greater than what he said. But you will never experience what he said to be true about you until you trust him enough to follow him there. So I don't know where it is for you. But I know that the Spirit of God is speaking to you today. And I know that he's pushing you. He's urging you. He's challenging you. Not in your love for him. He knows that you love him. That's the reason you feel guilty. He knows that, he, that you love him. That's the reason you feel squeamish when I even talk about it. He knows that you love him. That's the reason like, like you feel so torn and perplexed. The problem is you don't trust him enough to follow him. If you love me, follow my commands. Because on the other side of it, you will find what you are always looking for. Today, I want to pray for you. But I want to pray for the boldness to trust Jesus enough to follow him. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us. God, I thank you for your people listening right now who love you so deeply. But Father, I pray for boldness on the inside of them to trust you in ways that they've never trusted you before. God, God, help them to follow you because that's your call on us. Help them to do what you said to do. Don't let the enemy speak that lie one more time over their life that, that would have them to believe that they don't love you. They love you. God, give them the grace, give them the power, give them the strength, give them the confidence to trust you enough. To do what you said. For the honor of your great name, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.